today. We're going to be in what some call the greatest book in the Bible, and that is the book of Romans. So would you take your copy of God's Word? Join me in the book of Romans this morning. A few years ago, I had the great privilege of teaching through the book of Romans on the Amazon River in Brazil through Word of Life Brazil. I put together a little workbook for uh, our students in seminary and was able to uh, teach the book of Romans to those who believed and felt like God was calling them into the ministry. And it was just a great blessing to be able to have that opportunity to do that. And then last year, in fact, I see Jeff back there. Last year, this week, I believe, Jeff, we were in Guyana, South America. And uh, uh, much of our team was building a church and Brian Tyndall and myself were teaching in a village called Warapoka. And once again, I had the opportunity to teach through the book of Romans. So the more I teach through it, the more I study it, the more I read it, the greater appreciation I have for it. And I feel like Martin Luther who said, it is the daily bread of the soul. And the more we read it and the more we study it, the more precious it becomes and the sweeter it tastes. So that's where we're going to be this morning, uh, the book of Romans, the greatest, chap the greatest book in the Bible. And right here on 2021, how better to celebrate our first Sunday in the new year with not just the greatest book in the Bible, but perhaps the greatest chapter in the Bible, and that is chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. When you think about great chapters in the Bible, what comes to your mind? Maybe, maybe Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I think most of us would agree that's an incredible chapter. Or maybe John 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus when he prayed, Father, make them all one even as we are one. That's a great chapter. My personal favorite is Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. A chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. But what an incredible, incredible chapter. But when you think about the great, greatest chapter in the Bible, Ray Stedman said, that Romans 8 is the most powerful human document that's ever been penned. Now, that's quite a statement, is it not? The most powerful human document that has ever been penned? The challenge in preaching from a text like this is it's like taking a sip of water from a fire hose. There is just so much to glean and so much to try to soak in. It is in this chapter. We're not going to read through it. But let me just reference some of the verses that you find in this chapter. You'll remember these as you hear a portion of them quoted. It is in chapter 8 where we find the verse, There is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. It is in this chapter where we hear and read, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. It is here that we read, The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. It is in this 8th chapter where Paul said, For I reckon, that's how we know he was from the south, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. It is in this 8th chapter where we read, All things work together for good to those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. And it's in this 8th chapter we read, We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. No chapter speaks more clearly to the security of the believer, the eternal security of the believer, then does Romans chapter 8. It begins in verse 1 with no condemnation, and it concludes in verse number 39 with no separation. 
No condemnation, no separation, meaning if you know the Lord today, if you've been saved, there will never be a time when you are eternally condemned, and there will never be a time that you will be eternally separated. So, we are not only going to look at the greatest book and the greatest chapter, but what many would claim also is the greatest verse. So again, as we move toward 2020, what better way to start a brand new year than with verse number 31? Let's look at it. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? So the title of my sermon this morning is God is for us in 2021. God is for us in 2021. Listen, just as we have closed the door on 2020, who many have said they stayed awake all night for, to bring in the new year, it wasn't to bring in the new year as much as it was to make sure that 2020 actually left. Uh, because it has been a challenging year, and it has been a difficult year. But I want us to look at what Paul had to say here in Romans 8.31 in a sermon entitled, God is for us in 2021. Just as he saw us through last year, he's going to be faithful, amen, to see us through. And not just so we will survive, but I believe in ways that we will thrive. A recent CBS News article by Caitlin O'Kane cited 21 historians as to the most stressful year in American history. Now maybe you saw this report or you read this article. But uh, these historians got together and they rated the years in American history and they categorized them as the most stressful. Here were their results. The top slot of the most stressful year in American history was 1896 when the Civil War was raging. Number two was actually a tie. It was 1929 with the crash of the stock market that also kind of subsequently led to the Great Depression. That tied with um, 1838 when some 4,000 Cherokee Indians died in a thousand mile march toward Oklahoma that's called the Trail of Tears. Number four was 1919 when 65,000 Americans died in the Spanish flu. Can you imagine that? 1919, some 65,000 people died as a result of the Spanish flu. Number five was 1968 with the assassination of Robert Kennedy and then Martin Luther King and all of the civil unrest. That was number five on the list. And then number six was the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. And some have said that that is the closest that our country has ever came to nuclear war. Number seven was 2001 with the terrorist attacks of 9-11. The attacks on the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, uh, Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and all that followed that made 2001 the number seven most stressful year in American history. And then finally they say that number eight was 2020 as the most stressful year in American history. The pandemic, a lot of people out of work dealing with the financial crisis, a contentious election, a number of different factors. But I say probably most of us would agree that 2020, 2020 had indeed been a difficult struggle in a lot of ways, even in our church life. And we don't want to go through that again, right? But here we are, 
through 2020, standing on the first week and the first Sunday of 2021, and we look down 360 days into the future, and we wonder what does 2021 have in store for us the remainder of the year? For some of us, you may have a new addition to your family. You might have a new baby born into your family. For others of us, we might have someone who passes away in our family in 2021. We might get diagnosed with a, with a, with a, a disease, or we might uh, lose our job. Who knows what 2021 might have for us? I believe for all of us there will be good times, and then there will be some, probably some sad occasions or some disappointing occasions as well. But through the valleys... And on the mountaintops, God has promised to be with us because the Bible says that God is for us. And I'm going to continue to drive home that point this morning through this sermon because I don't want you to leave here today feeling as though God is against you. I want you to know if you will live for God, if you love God, God is not against you today. God is for you. Let me say that again. God is for you. God is for you. And he loves you with an everlasting love. And I believe to move through 2021, if we don't move through it knowing that God is for us, it's like swimming in the ocean without any land in sight. But when you know God is for you, it gives you strength, it gives you courage, it gives you comfort, it gives you faith and it builds your faith to know whatever comes, I'm not alone in this situation that God is with me. So in this last paragraph of Romans chapter 8, Paul the Apostle gives seven rhetorical questions. And I've mentioned this in the earlier service today, seven rhetorical questions. Now a rhetorical question, it's a literary device that does not need an answer, meaning that the answer is so obvious that it gives a greater impact to the statement if, if the answer is not given. Meaning we would say something like this, when somebody states the obvious, they might say, uh, is the Pope Catholic? Well, of course, right? So that's, that's rhetorical. You don't have to answer that. We all know that. Or do birds fly? Or are you kidding me? We say that sometimes. And oftentimes in our vernacular today, we put the word duh in front of it. Duh, do birds fly? Or when someone states the obvious, duh, do, do fish swim? Well, Paul didn't use the word duh, but he did give us seven rhetorical questions uh, in this final paragraph to help us see just how God is for us. And I want you to maybe underline these. I just want to read through them very quickly. Look in verse number 31, you'll find two of them. First of all, he says, what shall we say then to these things? Referencing what he's already said previously, um, uh, some translations say, what will we say in response to these things? Now remember, he's not looking for an answer. The implication is this. Based on everything that's already been said, he would say, I'm just speechless. I have nothing to say. Look in verse 31 again. If God be for us, who can be against us? No answer is necessary. The implication is nobody can stand against us if God is for us. Look in verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Here's the implication. That if God so loved the world that he would send his son to die on the cross for us, and he did, does he not still love you enough to see you through 2021? Of course. If he loved you enough to get us through the pandemic and through all that we experienced in 2020, doesn't he continue to love us enough to be for us in the coming year? 
So the answer to that, of course, would be, of course so. Of course he loves us that much. Look in verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Implied, no one. Verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? Implied, nobody. Nobody can make accusation because the Bible says there's no condemnation in them who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What's the implication? No one. No one or nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. He bears down on his pen in verse 35. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword and implied there is no, 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 none of those things can separate us from the love of God. So we're going to spend the balance of our time looking at verse number 31. So I want to draw your attention, your eyes back up to verse number 31 and look at that first question, what shall we then say to these things? Now if you're reading the Bible, what would you immediately ask yourself when you come to that passage? Well you would want to know, as would I, what things does he mean? What things What shall we say to these things? What things is he referencing? Some would say that he's referencing all the teaching from chapter 1 through chapter 8. Probably more specifically, what he's referencing is is a specific um, 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 section of Scripture from chapter 5 to chapter 8, where he deals specifically with a subject of predestination. We would call, um, scholars call it uh, an inclusio, if you've ever heard that phrase. It's an envelope. Maybe you're more familiar with brackets as a literary device. You put in a statement, you draw attention to it with a bracket, and they would say the inclusio is, it starts in chapter 5, it concludes in chapter number 8, and it's a standalone theme where he's talking about, the, uh, about predestination. It's predestination station, in other words. Do we choose God, or does God choose us? Do we say that, yes, I want to be saved, so I'm going to choose to be saved? Or do we say that, that God chooses and there's nothing that you can do about that? That he has predetermined who goes to heaven and predetermined who goes to hell. So does God choose us or do we choose God? Well, the answer to that question is yes, and we'll explore that in another sermon for another day. But that is the, that is the inclusio of chapter 5 through chapter number 8. So when Paul says, what shall we say to these things? He's referencing that hunk of truth there in those three chapters. So after he lays out what it means to be saved, what it means to be brought into the family of God, he goes on to say, he goes on to say, verse 31, if God be for us, who can be against us? Now, he is not saying, if you look at that little word, if, he is not saying, maybe God is for us and maybe God is not for us. No, if is a conditional word. My wife, who was an English teacher, she came up to me after the first service and she said, it is a clausal word. I say, no, honey, it is a conditional word. She said, it is a clausal word. She's right, but I'm right too, uh, because it is both. It is a conditional word, meaning if. The condition is this will happen if something like A happens, then B will happen. It's conditional. And it could also be clausal. In the Greek, it is a conditional particle. And it means, listen to this now, a fulfilled condition, not a possibility. So it can be translated this way. 
since God is for us. Or because God is for us, who can be against us? Do you see the punch that that adds? So it's not maybe God is, maybe he's not for us. It's not an option. We would say since God is for us, it's much more emphatic, or because God is for us, who can be against us? There is no more fundamental truth in the scripture than the fact that God is for us. Listen, church, God is not against you. God is for you. God is not neutral when it comes to us. He is not indifferent when it comes to us. He is not passive when it comes to us. God is very active in that God is for us. That means if you're walking with him, he's on your side, or he allows you to be on his side, and that he's not working against you, but he's working to bring about his will in your life. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says, quote, what is being proclaimed here is God's undertaking to uphold and protect us when men and things are threatening to provide for us as long as our earthly pilgrimage lasts and to lead us finally into the full enjoyment of himself. However, many obstacles may seem at present to stand in the way of our getting there. The simple statement, God is for us, is one of the the richest and weightiest utterances that the Bible contains. If you ever wonder if God is really for you, all you have to do is let your mind go to the cross of Calvary. If you're wondering if God is really for you, then focus on the cross for just a little while, where God gave heaven's greatest treasure, amen, when he allowed his son to come into this world and to die on a cross not for good people who had just made mistakes, but for people who were nailing him to the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So if you ever wonder, is God for me? All you have to do is look at all the trouble he's gone to. Now, God doesn't go to trouble because nothing is trouble for him, but you get what I'm saying, right? Look at all that God put into providing salvation for you and I to make sure that we could avoid eternal separation and live forever with him in glory. God has crossed all the T's. God has dotted all the I's. God has taken care of all the details because he's for us. He's not against us. He's for us. Now, sometimes the circumstances of life may seem so difficult that we may think that life is against us. Or we may even think that God is against us. Maybe you're going through a situation in your life where the situations are so dark in your relationships that you wonder, why did God let this happen to me? Or you're going through some kind of a hard time where only God and you know about it, and you're, you, you find yourself thinking, why me? Why am I experiencing this? Why is this happening to me? And though you may know intellectually that God is for you, practically you're not feeling as though God is for you. But Jesus said, just before he went to the cross, he said, nobody takes my life from me. He said, I freely lay it down, meaning that it was his volitional will. He volunteered to give his life on the cross, and Jesus said he would do this for us. For us. Because he is for us. We call that, listen, we call that substitutionary atonement, meaning that Jesus did not simply die on my behalf and your behalf. 
He died in my place. There's a big difference. He died in your place. It should have been me on the cross because I was the one that, that broke fellowship with God. should have been you on the cross. But Jesus, in essence, removed us from the cross, replaced it with himself, and as the substitute of the world, said, nobody is doing this to me, but I'm doing this for you because I'm for you. So if you ever think God's against you, just remember, let your mind go back to the cross and remember all that the Lord Jesus has done for you to bring you into God's family. So in verse number 31, he says, if God is for us, notice this, who can be against us? Remember, what's the implication? No one. Well, we live in a real world, right? Paul is not saying that you will never have any opposition. He is not saying that you'll never have any trouble. You will have opposition everywhere you go from time to time. You will have opposition in your home. It may be opposition where you work. It may be opposition in your family. It might be opposition as you just go to the department store. Listen, it might even be opposition in the church, God forbid. It has been said to dwell above with, with those we love, that will indeed be glory. But to live with, uh, below with those we know, now that's a different story. And sometimes it might even be somebody who is a Christian that brings difficulty into your life. And God forbid that we would ever stoop down to any kind of sabotage for another person's life or any kind of uh, event that would cause anybody else grief in their lives. But the reality is we will all face opposition from time to time. So he is not saying that you won't face opposition. But what he is saying is that in spite of the opposition you may face, that God in heaven is real and that God in heaven is for us. And if God is for you, who can be against you? He's not saying you won't have opposition, but here's what he's really saying. He's really saying if God's for you, it doesn't matter if somebody else is against you. Isn't that right ultimately, right? If God's for you, it doesn't matter if the whole world ultimately despises us. It makes no difference. Because God's for us. Who can be against us? It doesn't make any difference. Ultimately, now I'm speaking generally because we know that it, that it causes pain and it hurts. In that regard, it does make a difference. But regardless, of all the circumstances in life are lined up against us. When you boil it down to the nubbies, it makes no difference because God's for us. So our role is not to get distracted with who may be against us or the circumstances that are not working out for us. Our role is to have that confidence that I'm walking with God and that God is, God is for me and he's going to honor me as I honor him. Now there were a lot of people in the Bible who did not feel as though from time to time that God was with them. You remember Job? Job probably suffered as much as anybody in biblical history. Job lost his family. Think about this. He lost his family. He lost his wealth. He lost his holdings, his properties, his, his possessions. Ultimately, he lost his health. And he finds himself sitting on a pile of ashes, scraping his, the itch of the boils that had covered his body from head to toe. Now, do you think Job felt like God was for him in a time like that? Do you think he felt like God was for him when he stood on this windswept hill by the freshly dug graves of his children? 
Or you could look over his shoulder and you could see his home going up in smoke. Do you think that Job felt as though God was for him? Listen to what he wrote. He said, God, why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? David was another man. A man who wrote Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, went through such a time in his life. He felt that God was not for him. And in Psalm 53, he wrote these words, I wish I had the wings of a dove and I would just fly away from all of my troubles. Have you ever felt like that? Oh, if I just had the wings of a dove, I would just escape all of this. And I would just fly away from all the trouble of life. The problem is, there is no destination that you can fly to where trouble does not exist. Isn't that right? There is no destination that is a trouble-free destination. There's no marriage that's a trouble-free marriage. There's a no job, no job that's a trouble-free job. Because usually we take our troubles with us. And wherever we arrive, there's trouble there waiting on us. But David said, oh, I wish that I could just take the wings of a dove and I would just fly away from all of the troubles of life. But it was unrealistic. But David went through the time where he felt like maybe God wasn't for him. Jeremiah, another patriarch of the Old Testament, knew that the Babylonian captivity was coming for the Jewish people. And he even predicted that, and he wrote about that, and he talked about that, and he preached about that for the 40 years of his ministry, going up and down the streets. And he said, as he wept, judgment's coming, and nobody would listen. And then when judgment finally did come, and the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem, and they raised the temple, Jeremiah said, the Lord is like an enemy, and he has swallowed up Israel. One of the most influential people in the Bible is Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. His sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob, the Bible says about him, God says, Jacob whom I have loved. But Jacob went through a time when he felt so unloved. He thought Joseph was dead. He thought his son Benjamin was going to die or perhaps was dead. And Jacob said, all of these things are against me. But what he had forgotten is there was a God in heaven who was not against him, but a God in heaven who was for him. And just as God was with David and with Jeremiah and with Jacob and with Job, if you'll walk with God, listen church, God will be for you. Now make no mistake about it. Just as God is for you, Satan is against you. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that Satan is not for you, but he is against you. He is against everything about your life. He's against your home. He's against your children. He's against where you work, where you earn your income. He is against every aspect of your life. Jesus said to Simon Peter one day, Simon... Satan desires to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Now that's painful imagery that he uses because to sift wheat would be to shake that wheat violently so that the kernel would be separated from the chaff. And Jesus would say to Peter, Satan desires to have you that he might shake your life like that. That he might shake you to pieces and shake you until you fall apart. And maybe you find yourself in the middle of that kind of shaking right here during the sermon this morning. 
and you've been shaken throughout the week, and you're right in the middle of it now. Be encouraged by what Jesus went on to say to Simon Peter. Satan may want to sift you like wheat, he says, but, but don't fear. He says, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Jesus prayed for Simon Peter that he would be strong in all the shaking of life. We went through 2020 being shaken, didn't we? But isn't it great to look back on that now and say God was faithful every step of the way. Amen, church? Faithful every single step of the way, and not one promise that he made did he fail to keep. Jesus prayed for us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And friends, God in heaven is for us. And as we move through a new year, we have to lean on that and trust that that the devil might be against us, but thank God, God is for us. Gideon used 350 men to defeat, to defeat an army of 135,000 because he knew God was for him. A man by the name of Frederick Nolan was fleeing from his enemies during a time of great persecution in North Africa a number of years ago. His enemies had chased him all through the desert, up and down the mountains, down in the ravines, and he finds himself utterly exhausted as one night he feels as though his enemies are getting closer to him, and he finds a cave, a mouth of a cave, that he can hopefully find some, some refuge. And he goes into that cave, and he just falls down in exhaustion in the middle of the night. And he's lying there on his face. He looks out at the mouth of that cave, and he sees a little spider that begins to spin a web. And that spider moves back and forth across the mouth of that cave. Back and forth and back and forth. And Mr. Nolan is just watching this, and he says it was like he was transfixed on this beautiful little spider just making this, this uh, obscure kind of a spider web across the mouth of this cave. And after just a little while, it was like that web had just kind of covered the areas of the mouth of that cave. And then in a little while, the soldiers that were pursuing him came to that very cave to look for him. And as they started to enter the cave with their torches, they could see that spider web being illuminated by the flame on their torches, knowing that if he could not have been inside without disturbing that spider web, they just say to themselves, he's not in here, and they go on their merry way. And with that, Mr. Nolan is spared. And he exclaims this with a shout of victory in his life. He says, where God is, a spider's web is like a wall. And where God is not, a wall is like a spider's web. Isn't that great? That is the truth of Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? And sometimes he might even use a little spider's web to show how he is working not against us but for us because we desperately need to somebody to stand in for us and to stand on our behalf and to be our advocate. And that is exactly what the Lord is for you and I. He stands for us and is with us as long as you walk with him. Let me show you how this chapter kind of comes to a grand crescendo. If you will look in verse number 35, Paul begins to ask these other questions. Again, not searching for an answer, but just to bear down on the pen to say, this is already implied. Look what he says in verse number 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now it's interesting that he uses the word who. But then when he responds to this, he gives us a list of what? 
Persecution, distress, trouble, not who. He doesn't get to the who until the last couple of verses. But nonetheless, he said, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? First of all, shall tribulation. That word means pressure. It is all the pressure of 2020 on your shoulders. Ever feel like your life is in a vice? It is all the pressure of life bearing down on your shoulders. It is all the unknown and the unpredictableness of 2021. He says, does any kind of pressure in life separate us from the love of God? The answer to that would be what? No. Look at the next word. Distress. It's also rendered hardship or calamity. A calamity is an event causing great distress or, or damage and contributes to much of our anxiety. Can calamity separate us from the love of God? An article entitled Googling God explores trends in Google search data, meaning to track what people search for when they go to the search engine Google. Specifically, in this article, it was to see the questions that people ask about God. There were three top questions that were given. Number one, overwhelmingly, number one question that people Googled that they wanted to ask God, number one is who created God or where did he come from? The second one was uh, not just where did God come from or who created God, but the second one was why is there so much suffering in the world? Now, I think I could have guessed those two. I figured they would probably be right up there to the top. But the third one, I had no idea. Wasn't even close. But the number three question, most popular question that people ask God is, why does God hate me? To be honest with you, that never entered my mind. Why does God hate me? me. And I'm thinking there are 8 billion people on this planet and people who are searching for answers and they want to know God and they want to know about God. And one of the top three questions they ask is, God, why do you hate me? Let me say before I go any farther, God doesn't hate you. God loves you. That's a good place for an amen, church. God doesn't hate you. God loves you. God's not against you. God's for you. But that was the number three most requested search about God, is why does God hate me? And then people were asked to fill in the blank to this question. Why did God make me blank? Why did God make me blank? And the respondents were asked to fill in that blank. Again, this one blew my mind. The number one word that was put in that blank is why did God make me ugly? Number one, why did God make me ugly? Is that how much of our world would see themselves and having a chance to ask God anything is God, why do you hate me and why did you make me so ugly? There are no 
ugly people because everybody is created in the image of God. Now, we might look on the outside and we might think that some are more attractive than others or some are less attractive than others, but I want you to know in the mind and the heart of God, God loves every single one of us. God is for every single one of us. We were created in his image. God doesn't make ugly things. In fact, he saw in you enough to warrant him sending his son to die on the cross for you. So can tribulation separate you from God's love? No. How about distress? No. How about calamity? No. Look at the next word, persecution. It was a constant threat to the early church in the first century. Can that separate you from the love of Christ? Of course not. Famine. That's what he says. How about famine? Can that separate us from the love of Christ? When I read about the results of the pandemic of uh, 20 and 2020 and 2021 now, and I can't help but to read the reports of things like the hospitality industry that are suffering, the restaurant industry suffering, businesses closing, and people worried about how they're going to come up enough, with enough money to pay the bills and to feed their family. And my heart breaks for those folk, and I try to pray for them every time the Holy Spirit brings them to my mind. But I just want you to know, even in the midst of a pandemic, even when it seems dark, even when it seems like there's trouble all around us, I want you to know God is for us, not against us. God loves you, and he could never think about hating you. He could never say to a person whom he has saved that he has given his son to die on the cross for them, he could never say to them and would never say, I no longer want you in my family. I no longer care about you. I no longer want to offer you this gift of salvation. God would never say that and never do that because he's for you, because he loves you. And he wants to walk with you through a new year of 2021. So can, can, can tribulation, distress, persecution separate us from God? No, no, no is the answers to that. Nakedness, how about that? No. Peril, no. Sword, a violent death, no. Some folk might go through sickness and hardship and they ask themselves, why? Why does this happen to me? That's okay to ask God that. Jesus even asked the Father that when he was upon the cross. There's nothing wrong with that. So it's okay to ask God. Why? When we're searching for answers. But it's not okay to imply that God somehow is mad at us or is punishing us or hates us because that's not the character of God. Listen, we can never have the idea as a Christian that life will be without problems. In fact, Paul bears down on that when he quotes in verse number 36, he quotes Psalm 44 that says, For your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. In other words, that's how we live our lives every day. That's why we have trouble, hardship, trials, difficulty. But he said, be of good courage because none of those things will separate you from the love of God. In fact, go to verse 37. He says, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. That word conquer is overcomer. Literally, it means, listen to this, super overcomer. We are a super overcomer when it comes to the trials, the hardships. Why is that? Because God's for us. God's for us. Look in verse 38. I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, when we're living God's for us. When we die, if you know Christ, God is for you. Not good angels would never separate you from his love. Not bad angels or principalities. Not powers. 
not things present, nor anything that you're going to encounter in 2021 will separate you from the love of Christ Jesus. He says not height nor depth. Those are actually astrological terms because the ancients were terrified about the tyranny of the stars. But nothing in the heavens, nothing on the earth, nothing will come into our life that will separate us from the love of God. In fact, if you write in your Bible, I want you to note verse 35, the love of Christ. Then the verse number 39, the love of God. God loves you. He does not hate you. In fact, when Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, he says, you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And that word workmanship from the Greek, it comes, it's the word poemia. It's where we get our word poem. That your life, God created you in his image, and your life to him is like a poem. A beautiful poem. Isn't that, a great, isn't that great imagery to know how God's for us? not against us. One of my favorite songs, there's an old song uh, written under difficult circumstances, which I think is why I have such an affinity to the song. In fact, uh, I used to have a copy of the handwritten stationery that this song was originally written on. It was hotel stationery. And I actually gave it away to to one of our church members uh, who has now passed away because I knew that was their favorite song. I had a framed copy of this song. But it is called, uh, It Is Well With My Soul. It's written by Horatio Spafford, who had lost a son early in his life. And then he lost four daughters in a ship at, ship, a shipwreck uh, over the, the North Atlantic. And if you could imagine what kind of trauma that that guy must have experienced. But as he boards a vessel to go to England, and when that vessel gets right across those same icy waters that claim the lives of his four daughters and their precious little lives sunk to the bottom of the North Atlantic Sea, he takes out that hotel stationery, and he wrote that poem. Later put to music, It is well with my soul. Just let these words sink into you as we close out this sermon. Listen. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows, you get that? When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. You see, the sorrows of life do not separate us from the love of Christ. The next verse, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Not even the blows of Satan who wants to sift us like wheat and shake us to pieces can separate us from the love of Christ. The next verse says, my sin, all the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Not even our sin, if you've come to faith in Jesus, can separate us from the love of Christ because Jesus bore all the punishment of that in his own body. And then the final verse says, And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. And the clouds, the clouds that are dark and foreboding and ominous and intimidating looking, and the clouds be rolled back like a scroll. The trumpet shall sound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, 
it is well. It is well with my soul. Why could he write those words? Because he knew in his heart, God is for us. Amen? God is for us. Let's pray. Lord, you are indeed so good to us. We'll never be able to thank you for all your many blessings. Thank you for that promise that nothing will separate us from your love. And that what will we say to all these things? God, if you're for us, and thank you that you are, then who can be against us? We leave this place encouraged today, moving toward a brand new year with our head held high, not in pride, but because we're a child of the King, knowing that nothing comes into our lives unless you allow it, and that passes through your hands. So God, as we have a time of public invitation where we just invite folk to make decisions, I recognize folk can make decisions in their own heart right where they are. But sometimes, Lord, you call us to a public decision. So if there's one here today that's never been saved, and Lord, they want to come to be saved today, Lord, I pray that they would just come as we sing in just a little while and say, Pastor Darrell, I want to be a Christian. I want to be saved today. I want you to show me from the Bible, and I want you to pray with me how to be saved. Lord, I'd love to do that today. Maybe there are others who want to unite with our church family. I pray they would come, or others who just have a burden, and they want to give it to you. You take the invitation and use it in accordance with your perfect will. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.